welcome everybody to the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association's Facebook page. Um, we will be simulcasting this presentation on YouTube. Um, I shouldn't say simulcast, but also posting it on YouTube, as well as this will become a, an episode of Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Tonight, we're doing something a little bit different, and we're, we're leaning into an important conversation. And that is around the issues related to health equity in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We know that there are some um, communities that are underserved in all areas of healthcare. And specifically within the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy community, we know we are not diagnosing and treating enough African-Americans and Blacks with HCM. They're just not showing up. We also know that HCM is the leading cause of sudden cardiac arrest in young athletes. And 50% of those young athletes who die suddenly are African-American males. It's time that we really dive into figuring out where the problems are, where we can do better. And I am a founder of a nonprofit and like about 85% of other nonprofit disease founders, I'm a Caucasian woman. So I'm not exactly the one to know how to answer this problem, but I do have some amazing people who are coming to the forefront to share their experience as Black Americans living with either hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or treating hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or researching the issues related to health equity in, in HCM. So I'm going to introduce a bunch of people here who we have today, and they're gonna tell you a little bit about why they're here and what their position is, and then we're gonna dive into a conversation. So I'm gonna start with our board chairman, Amit Kalia. Amit? Hi, how are you? Uh, my name is Amit Kalia, I'm a physician, uh, a family member that, um, whose family has been affected by HCM. I've been a member of the board of directors since uh, January, 2006, so almost 16 years now. And the past three years as the president of the board, the HCMA has been all about uh, getting patients to, to the right diagnosis, getting them access to the right care, and giving HCM patients a voice. It's been all about having patients be seen and represented. So I think it's only fitting that we, we start uh, the conversation about uh, health inequities and, and how, to, how to solve this issue that is uh, affecting our community. Amit, thank you very much. I know you have another engagement later tonight, so you may not be with us for the full discussion. But if anybody wants to contact you, they can just go to our website and there's contact information there. Um, but we're going to keep you for a little while here. I'm going to pivot the conversation to um, we're going to start with some of our medical professionals who are here this evening. And first, I'd like to introduce Dietra. So Dietra DeVos, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, I'm Dietra. I'm a nurse practitioner at the Janity Mass Center for Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy at Marstown Medical Center. We've been uh, open since March 14th of 2014, to be exact, and uh, one of the original members, still going strong. And HCM can be very anxiety-producing, and one of our uh, focuses when our patients come to our center is to help them de-stress, decrease the anxiety, and realize HCM in more ways than one because a condition that you could potentially have a normal lifetime and you can live with and actually have a quality of life. So I'm happy to be here today. And I, I do wanna bring up another point that you mentioned earlier. Uh, back in October, we had the International Summit 
about HCM management. And you noticed something in the room or the virtual room. And what was that? Well, I did notice we were talking about um, African-Americans and hypertrophic, well, actually African-Americans and women and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And what I did realize was I was the only African-American uh, healthcare provider worldwide for HCM, at least out of the participants in that international summit. And there were HCM specialists from all over the world. Uh, and I believe that you are the only professional um, in, in the care of patients with HCM at this point who is from this community. So um, it was really important for us to have you come join us today. So I really do appreciate that. Um, even though you're a Jersey girl and I would, you know, I know you got us. <laughs> okay, so now off to another Jersey girl. There is a theme here tonight so far, um, and that is Amelia. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about why you're here and then show us some data. Yes, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. My name is Mila Arbaji and I'm a postdoctoral researcher um, at NYU College of Nursing. My professional background is as a nurse practitioner, nurse uh, with over 10 years of HCM experience. And I really um, you know, transitioned into the academic path now because of the folks I would see in the clinic would um, you know, come to me with very, uh, with stories uh, of their diagnostic odyssey and their HCM diagnosis, uh, which can be very long or very traumatic. Um, and uh, they had questions and I didn't have any answers. Uh, and so I was really inspired to, uh, to pursue research on uh, specifically HCM in, in black adults. Uh, so I'll share my screen. Uh, if you could see that. So really there is limited HCM research in diverse populations overall, but uh, notably in black populations. Um, what is known and with the caveat that this is research that's generated in large referral HCM centers um, as population-based research on HCM is, is uh, quite sparse. Um, so what is known as uh, black cohorts are younger, but have similar number of comorbidities as whites, even though they're older. Um, they're more likely to have HCM cardiac characteristics that are uh, more challenging to diagnose um, and associated with worse disease progressions like um, mid LV uh, hypertrophy, mid, mid, mid cavitary obstruction. And I've shown a, um, a, a picture here of really with more precise imaging, how the true diagnosis and uh, anatomy can be delineated. Um, there's also lower genetic testing utilization in this group and potential with genetic misdiagnosis uh, with uh, given the lack of diversity in genetic uh, reference databases. Uh, however, uh, mortality is low and similar between blacks and whites uh, in HCM cohorts. Uh, but again, this is in the HCM center um, for the folks who make it to the HCM uh, referral centers. So really what research is needed, and there's a lot of it, you know, it's really what's available is the icing, uh, you know, on, on top of the iceberg, but there's a mountain of, of, of need. Um, some of the things that are really needed are population-based research or, and or HCM um, care in, in folks who get care in non-HCM referral centers. Prevalence is an evolving concept in HCM and a recent uh, population-based uh, paper looking at a multi-ethnic cohort um, uh, identified 
higher prevalence of unexplained LVH actually um, in a general population sample of 1.4%, uh, with actually 1.8 being in a black uh, sample versus 1.2 in the white sample. But the, num the absolute numbers are small, uh, and so that bears a uh, much uh, bigger uh, investigation. Um, there's also really a need to research co-occurring conditions, specifically hypertension, because hypertension very commonly confounds the diagnosis of HCM. Uh, there's needs for quality of life, physical functioning uh, research, as well as symptom experience, self-management, and really also psychosocial and chronic stressors, including discrimination, as well as social determinants of health. All of you noted, uh, noted the access to, to care, uh, to, um, to specialty centers. So that's very important. That's not really um, explored, as well as precision health principles. So um, I'm currently uh, have a, um, so funders are funding HCM research in diverse populations, which is, uh, has been an exciting development. Uh, this is my study. I'm actively recruiting participants. And uh, for those who will see this podcast, I really want to thank uh, my participants who will probably see this. Uh, but it's a pilot study uh, really looking to examine decisional factors um, affecting genetic testing utilization, um, as well as examine genetic gaps themselves by uh, whole exome sequencing uh, and looking at HCM risk um, genetic variants as well. Um, and so I'll stop right there because I don't want to go over, but this is uh, some references that may be useful uh, to really see the actual limited, uh, very limited literature uh, on the topic. So Mila, thank you so much. Okay, so I'd ask Mila to pr provide some of those slides to start the conversation as to what do we know like from a clinical point of view and from an academic point of view about the problem of low diagnosis, low populations of anything but Caucasians in HCM centers. So we need to not only worry about recruiting more and finding more families from Black and African-American communities, but Latino communities and Asian communities. And we will be working on that throughout the year. But tonight we're gonna start here because it's a critical problem and we're gonna have a discussion about it. So I'm gonna do a little bit of a round robin and ask all of our participants to introduce themselves in, in about 30 seconds or a minute or so. And then we're gonna dive into some dialogue about how, where we see the problems and what we're gonna do about them. I am going to start from um, our participants in Colorado and that's Charles and Annette, and they are going to share an image with us as well. Good evening. I'm Charles Roberts. This is my wife, Nanette Roberts. We live just south of Denver in uh, Longtree, Colorado. Uh, we had an only son. His name was Raymond. You're going to show me a picture to Raymond. Um, very active young man. Uh, went to the Air Force Academy, went through the rigors of training and physical in the Air Force Academy, got out of the academy, uh, ended up in, uh, in life, and uh, suddenly passed away. Uh, with HCM, we didn't know anything about HCM. He had a son, 19 months old at the time. We're in the process of writing a book about his life so his son would have some idea of who his father was and the kind of person he was. That is a beautiful tribute to your son. We're very sorry for your loss, but we really do appreciate you being here to represent your son and to share his story in hopes that we can make some change for the future and maybe for that little grandson of yours. Next, we're going to speak to Nicora. Hi, my name's Nicora. I currently live in Maryland. 
I am the caregiver to twins, one of which my son, Asan, has HCM. And he is one of those um, common stories. He was in a basketball game and had an asthma attack and then was diagnosed um, with the disease. Okay, thank you, Nicora. And we're going to go over to Benjamin down to Texas. Hello, my name is Benjamin. First, I just want to say thank you, Lisa and Julie, for all the work that you are doing. Uh, HCMA is a tremendous blessing to me. I was diagnosed with uh, HCM in 2007, and that's why I'm here. I have HCM. I had my first defibrillator implanted in 2010. I had a blood clot in my coronary, right coronary artery in 2014, and uh, had a uh, my second uh, ICD uh, implanted in 2016. So happy to be a part of this. Happy to have you here. Next, we're going to pivot to Jasmine, who has a little one in her hand sometimes. Yes. Um, hello, my name is Jasmine. Um, I'm here because I lost my fiance in August of 2020. Um, it was undiagnosed. Um, we didn't know he had it and it was very sudden. So um, now I just want to bring awareness um, to the cause and be help because we have a little one who is one. And that picture behind you, who's that? Yes, and this is Derek with our son. Thank you for sharing Derek with us and thank you for the courage to be here. I know it's rough going through what you're going through and we really appreciate it. We have another member of your, your family and that's Jill. Jill, why don't you tell us why you're here? Hi, yes, I am Jill and um, Jasmine's fiance is my brother. And I am here because it started back with our mother, my, my mother and Derek's mother 29 years ago, she had HCM. And 29 years later, Derek had HCM and both of them passed away. So that's why I'm here. Thank you for being here, Jill. And we're sorry for the loss of your mom and your brother. Avon, recovering in Florida. Hi, everyone. My name is Avon. I live in South Florida, about 15 minutes outside of Fort Lauderdale. And I've been on this journey for 20 years, undiagnosed with HCMs, going to doctors and having them hear my symptoms and not getting diagnosed. Finally got diagnosed this year in June. And I had a myectomy on October 21st and I'm home recovering from that. So for those who don't know much about HCM, myectomy is an open heart procedure. So this lovely lady is recovering from open heart surgery right now. Um, we're gonna jump to Brian, the quiet one up in the corner on my screen. Uh, hi, my name's Brian. Uh, I'm 38 years old from Salisbury, Maryland. Um, I was 21 when I was first diagnosed in 2004. Um, I then proceeded to have my first uh, septal myectomy in 2009. Uh, I then had another apical myectomy and a thrombectomy in 2014. I had my first ICD shortly a few months after that. And then I had my second ICD placed in just this past January. That's a lot of surgeries for a young man. Just a lot. Okay, we have somebody else who wanted to participate in this group, but unfortunately her work schedule wouldn't let her be here. So I am going to share some comments from her and I will let her speak for herself. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Taylor Green. Um, currently right now I'm a social worker at a hospital here in San Diego, California. 
Uh, I'm originally from Kansas, but I've been in San Diego for about four years now. I really wish I could be there with you guys live, but due to, you know, my job, I wasn't able to be there, but I really want to share how important self-advocacy is for young Black women, especially young Black women with ACM. So now that we understand why everybody's here, so some of you are living with HCM, some of you are researching it, some of you are treating it, and some of you are here because you've lost somebody to HCM. We need to do something more formal about HCM. And, and one of the things that we will be doing next year at the HCMA is seating our first health equity committee. And I'm using this as an opportunity to start to build the roadmap for how we're gonna change the future. And if anybody knows anything about me, when we get our mind on something, what we want to change, we get organized, we make change. And that's how it goes. So we are getting organized. And my goal is to come back here in approximately one year's time. So I want to come back December of 2022 with the same crew. And I want to see what we can accomplish in a year. And I'm going to start with Dietra. And I'm going to ask her, where do we start? What do we do? Good point and good question. Um, one of the issues with African-Americans, you don't see them a lot in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy centers. And that unfortunately parlays into high mortality because they're not being treated. So one of the issues that we do realize from the research is access to care. We see the access to care and that they're not able to get to a healthcare provider for transportation issues, or it could very well be insurance. They don't have appropriate insurance or don't have insurance at all. So one of the things that I think that we could utilize is we can go to our people. Where do we go? We're very spiritual. We can go to the church. We can go to barbershops and the hair salons. No, we always got to get our hair done. We could go there and also to a mobile unit. <laughs> a mobile unit. Put in a grant, girlfriend. Let's do this. Hey, absolutely. We will come and bring the medical equipment to you if you cannot get to us. Get ourselves a nice little uh, van or one of those uh, travel camper things, an EKG machine, get ourselves an, an, an echo machine, perhaps, and let's do the screening evaluations there on scene for free. Let's get a grant and let's make that happen and reach out to the churches to say, we're coming this date. We'll be there for morning service. We'll be there for the midday service, you know, and get our people seen and evaluated and linked into an HCM referral center. I think that's one of the things we certainly can do as a start. And also too, what we also need to do is recruit more African-American providers uh, to HCM and be HCM specialists. As we all know, you know, for those of us who have grandparents and parents that are still alive, the Tuskegee Institute Net Experiment is still talked about. And that gives a air of distrust with some of our my Caucasian counterparts. A lot of times when you see one of our own who is taking care of us, we have that automatic connection, that automatic feeling of trust because we know where they're coming from. We've all, we've all had struggles maybe not all, but a lot of us have struggles and we understand and know what it means to be African-American, what it means to struggle to get an education, what it means to get ahead, what it means to make sure that you're getting the appropriate care, advice, and things that you need. So we know, and they feel that we have their interests in mind. I think that's so, helpful. So a very audacious goal of a, a mobile response van, 
Um, I, I like it. Um, I will tell you that the HCMA has applied for a grant, I don't know if we'll get it or not, to hire a patient navigator for underserved communities to help them awesome. wherever they come to us from to help them get to care, make sure those appointments are made, that nobody falls through the cracks, that they're heard, that they're understood, that they know what to expect. And that would hopefully, if we can get that funded, we would have that on board for mid-year. Um, so we want to make sure that we're, we're focusing on what can we do, little bites to big bites to, you know, little steps to strides to running. So we got to start somewhere. So tonight's where it starts for me. Like we're having the conversation. We're building the dream list. What can we do? Now, I'm going to pivot to Yvonne here for a second because you mentioned a couple of points, and that's about the delayed diagnosis. Yvonne, you tried to get a diagnosis for many years. What happened? Why didn't you get to diagnosis? And how can we make it better? I think the most important thing would be education. Speaking also to Deatrice's point, um, my first doctor that I went to when I started having the symptoms was African-American. And he sent me, um, he actually admitted me in the hospital because he said I was anemic. While I was there in the ER, the nurse said, oh, you have a murmur and that's, that's common. A lot of people have murmurs. And that was the end of it. I got, the, I got an EKG, I got an electrocardiogram and Nobody noticed, they all said, oh, you have a strong heart. And nobody really noticed. And then they, I just kept getting, just everyone wanted to look at my other things. My blood pressure was high and they never connected the dots. So I was just, I, eventually I stopped trusting the doctors. That both African-American and Caucasian, I just stopped trusting the whole medical profession. I said, I'm gonna go and they're gonna give me a drug for my high blood pressure and that's it. So it wasn't until actually in 2020, I started having severe chest pains. Went to the ER again, and this time actually a female doctor admitted me in the hospital. But then again, the cardiologist was like, oh, well, your mitral valve is leaking. Let's fix that. Let's set you up for surgery and fix that. So I just don't feel that we're heard. Um, we're not listened to. It's like, you know, I even had a doctor tell me that the reason why you're, you're experiencing everything is because you have high blood pressure and therefore your heart is enlarged because you have high blood pressure. So we do need to educate doctors so we're not just being shuffled off and just given a drug for one thing. And then we end up, as Deirdre said, with these severe consequences. Exactly. And you reached out to us a couple months back and said, this is what they're telling me. And we said, stop. Here's the center of excellence. Please talk to them before you proceed any further. And everything changed. The care was, was very different. We got to the root cause and we got you to a timely surgery and here you are today. So, you know, it can work. And I think we're going to go to Kayla's point about self-advocacy. At a certain point, you're like, this is ridiculous. I'm taking control. And you found the resources, but not everybody. Yes. Can I say one more thing, Lisa, sure. before 
um, to Deatra's point as well, like here I went to Cleveland Clinic's Western um, facility. Now that's far removed from the inner city. It's a very affluent community. It's like, I don't even know how you would get there if you didn't have transportation, if you didn't have your own car. So even getting to a, a center of excellence for people is going to be an, an extreme inconvenience. We know we are working on HCM education through our HCM Academy program so we can get to community-based physicians so that they can help assess and when necessary, make those referrals. And in many cases, there are car services. Um, there are systems that we can set up and align people with. There's uh, medical lift programs or Uber programs, and there are things that we can do to help people. But it's there's that's why we need the navigator to get in the middle of this and help people put those pieces together. And how do I get a car? And who's paying for that? And I don't have the money for it. Well, maybe we're gonna have to go do some fundraising on that too. So far, we're buying a van, um, an RV, all the equipment, and we're coming up with money to pay for travel. We're doing it all. We got this is all on the list of things that we're going to do in the next year, or at least start processing. Um, I want to pivot up to Brian for a second because Brian, you, you had some delays in diagnosis, but then you had surgeries that might not have been right. What's it like to be you going through all of that, and what do you want people to know? Um, I guess one of the big things of that that I remember specifically that was an, an issue was just again go back to the issue of not being heard or listened to. Um, I remember a doctor telling me about one of the symptoms that I described to him. Was like, I have a lot of chest pain when I eat. And he kept telling me it's indigestion or it's heartburn, or it's acid reflux. And he refused to listen to me and kept prescribing me medication for those conditions. And I was like, this isn't helping. And he just would not listen and kept prescribing just something different. It was in the same class, just something different. So at that point, I was like, I can't necessarily trust this doctor to really make the best like plan of care for me because he's not listening to what I'm saying. So that means I have to go find the new doctor and then you have to start that whole rigmarole again. And like, they want their own workup, even though you have your own records, they're going to want to do their own stuff. So you have to go through all those testings, all those procedures all over again. And those things are spaced months in between. And the place where I was going was Johns Hopkins. So that's like, uh, I'm in Salisbury. So it's like maybe two, two and a half hours on a good day. So, I mean, that's it, not a whole day thing, but it still takes time out of your day. And, and every six months or so you're traveling back, back up to Hopkins and back. And it's just a real inconvenience. And so it's just like, it's very frustrating. And it's just sometimes to the point where it's just like, I don't want to do this. Like, what's the point? Like, I, it, it's easier just to live with this thing than it is to go to the doctor and have to deal with this over and over again. It's, it's extremely frustrating, but, you know, thankfully we managed to find a doctor who was willing to listen and, and we got to a plan of care that was working for me, sort of. And that whole process that you just explained is very real. Like you, yeah. you got, you got to take time off of work. You're yeah. young, you know, so there's those employment issues and then people are asking, well, why do you keep going to the doctor? And then you're like, well, who really needs to know I have a heart problem? And did you encounter any perceived 
what you perceive as discriminatory treatment because of the time you were taking off? Um, I had a few doctors look at me questionably because I was so young. Like literally anytime I go anywhere, the first thing out of anybody's mouth, you're too young to have this. Like you shouldn't be here. And so a lot of the times they wouldn't necessarily chalk it up to this disease. They'd be like, oh, well, it's, it's something else. You know, you're too young to have this. Like, it's not for you. Like, this isn't your age group. This is not a disease for you. And I was like, uh, okay. I mean, I've had all the testing here that says otherwise, but, you know, I'm not here to, to argue with you. And so that kind of just, it put a lot of skepticism in my ability to to want to move forward with some of these doctors because they just weren't listening or they were just very dismissive or they would treat me like I was making it up. And it got very, like I said, very, very frustrating, um, especially at a young man, as a young man, because I was in my twenties and it's like, just kind of like the prime of your life, like where you're just figuring out who you are and doing the things that you want to do. And then having all that ripped away from you because of this disease. And you're like, I want this fixed now, like ASAP. So I can get back to doing what I want to do. I want to be an adult. I want to work. I want to start a family like all my friends. I want to graduate college, have kids. I want to do all these things that, you know, I planned on, but now I can't because I had this heart problem and everybody's just dragging their feet or closing doors in my face or just being very dismissive. And it's just all in all, it's just very, very like irritating and frustrating. So. I hear you. I, I see Benjamin nodding along here. We're going to pivot to Benjamin now because your experience is a, a lot alike, but a little different. So tell us what you think about what the medical community understands about you and how you've interacted with the medical community. Yeah, and I really appreciate you sharing that, uh, Brian. Uh, I was diagnosed in my 20s as well and got my first defibrillator when I was 30. Um, my interaction, and, and I guess really one of the big things I would want to get across, Lisa, is really being proactive and that's what I'm hearing from everyone else too, where there's a lot of frustrations, uh, but at the same time, if we can be proactive, I didn't really have any symptoms, but um, at the time I was working for a pharmaceutical company on the cardiovascular side, I majored in kinesiology, so I've always been interested in health. So I went in for a routine physical and, uh, and they gave me an EKG and my T wave was inverted. So that set some alarms off. So uh, that was a process, but one of the things that has resonated with me, and Yvonne, you had mentioned it as well, the, the distance. Um, I was living in, uh, my wife and I were living in Columbia, Missouri, and after talking to my cardiologist, I asked them, what, who's the best person I can see for this? And they said, Dr. Barry Marin, uh, Minneapolis Heart Institute. So that was like a seven or eight hour drive, and I'm thankful that we were able to make that drive and then move into Texas. Uh, I flew out a couple of years to um, Boston, to Tufts Medical Center to see him and his son. So distance can be very challenging when physicians are not really aware of this condition. But uh, the big thing for me, looking at my story and just hearing from other people, it is very challenging, but the more proactive we can be, uh, the more control uh, we can have where if there is something that's going on, we can get a, a handle on it as quickly as possible. So uh, that, I think that's something really important. And I know that's really hard, especially when trust is lost. So I'm thankful overall. My experience has been pretty positive with the, with the physicians. I ended up seeing three, my, my local cardiologist. Uh, then I went to um, Wash University in St. Louis and then to Minneapolis to, uh, to get the ultimate 
uh, or diagnosis just to make sure this is exactly what I had and not something else. Yeah, you, you went to the mountains. You went to Barry. <laughs> You've been buried. That's okay. right. That's right. Yeah. I, I did the same thing. I flew from New Jersey to Minneapolis back in the day, and then he went up to Boston. So yeah, where he sits today. Yeah. Okay. So I want to take a little bit of a turn here, and I want to kind of tag team the J team, Jill and Jasmine, um, because there's a part of this story here that we know HCM is genetic. For the majority of cases, we are learning some different things as time progresses, but this is thought of as a genetic disorder. And sometimes it's the first person in the family who's affected and we lose somebody unexpectedly and there was no family history. But when there is that family history and the family story gets lost in time, there's a lot of things going on there. So Jill, I want to bring you onto the microphone now and I want to talk about what you knew about your mother's health history and how old you and your brother were when all of that was going on with mom. Um, I was eight and my brother was two. And um, mom died from heart failure related to what we believe is HCM, correct? Correct. Yes. Um, as, as far as we know that we were told from the family, um, she was 26 and that's what we were told that she died from enlarged heart and I, I remember as a child when I was eight that she was always sick um and following having my brother that she was always sick that, that was my memory of her and so mom passes quite young you're quite young did anybody in the family talk about family screenings and did anybody think it was important to bring you to a cardiologist no no one like you said I guess it just got lost in time and just wasn't aware or uneducated about it and no one told us to get screened for it we didn't know we had to we didn't know anything about it so now we're many many years later and Derek is home with his fiance and other family members. And he's in a rousing boxing match with a couple of five-year-olds and he passes out and he goes to the emergency room. Jasmine, can you tell us a little bit what about what happened in this encounter? I think it's really an important story to share. Yes, um, so we got to the emergency room. Um, he was there like for maybe two hours max. Um, and all they did was a CT scan and they did a CT scan on his head. They didn't check his heart. They just thought head because um, he had got a sudden headache and then he collapsed. So um, they had checked his head and they didn't see anything obviously because it was his heart. But um, they said it could have been a seizure um, and they told him to see a neurologist and he probably wouldn't have a seizure again. It just happened out of nowhere. So not even a week after that, um, he, we were home and he had, he had caught a headache again and then he collapsed and that was it. Um, and then but it wasn't yeah, until- in the hospital, wasn't it related to them that he had a family history of heart problems yes. and heart and they did nothing to check that? 
Yes, they didn't check. They didn't bother to check. And we told them that um, his mom had passed at a young age and nobody checked his heart. So it was just, they just sent them home and told them um, to see a neurologist. So he sees a neurologist within a couple of days, which is kind of extraordinary to get an appointment with a neurologist in a couple of days. And the neurologist tells him he's fine. And within one week of the first event, he collapsed in full cardiac arrest and we're unable yes. to resuscitate him. It wasn't yes. even a whole two days. Yeah, it wasn't even yeah, it was um it wasn't even a full week. And then we saw the uh, ne neurologist and we were we literally talked to him for like maybe five minutes if that and he um said he would run some tests, but he said most likely it was a seizure and then Two days later, he passed away. That was from seeing the neurologist. So what do you wish was done differently that day when Derek was brought into the emergency room as a young black male who has, who has had a syncopal episode or has fainted? What do you wish they did different? I well, wish me, they would have, oh, oh, you yeah, can go ahead, Joe. I was just going to say for me, because um, I know I've been to the emergency room for, for other reasons and even with family history. And I had told the doctor about my mom passing one when I went to the emergency room one time and at the young age that she did, and I told him the reason why she passed. And he automatically was like, we got to check you. We got to check you too in your heart. And and I wish they had did that when they for my brother when they found out that his mom had passed. He had a family history of that. And I just wish they had checked him for that. Being that he wasn't in there, he, he didn't, nobody stated why he was, he was in there for a heart. They say he had, he complained about a headache. So I just wish after finding out a family history of his heart that they had checked it. So I'm going to pivot back up to, um, to uh, my goodness, I just lost my place here. I'm sorry, to Charles and Annette, because I've now pinned the pictures because it looks better on uh, Facebook. Um, so we can see big, big pictures of you. Charles and Annette, you first came to know about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy after the, I believe the autopsy was completed on your son. Um, what do you wish people knew about HCM before that day? And do you think there was anything that maybe we could have done differently looking back at your son, Ramon, and maybe what are your hopes for your grandson looking forward? I think the biggest problem was education. Um, the medical profession, I don't think it's educated well enough as it should be. The general public isn't well enough because we knew nothing about HCM. We never heard the term. As Nanette said earlier, uh, some of the, our friends who are in the medical profession, nurses, had never heard of it. And so we wish that we had known that it existed. Our son was a very active young man. I mean, he played basketball, he played tennis, he went to the Air Force Academy, he played tennis. Uh, he went through the rigors of training in the Air Force. And then he went to pilot school again, which was very rigorous and uh, it was never detected. He had, I don't know how many physicals, but nobody detected it. So. I, I think it's a multifaceted problem, but I think one of the keys, major keys, is education. Uh, not only, as I said, the general public, but the medical profession also. And I, when he was in flight school, 
they gave him medication, even at the Air Force Academy here in Colorado Springs. He would get sick every time he would fly a plane and he would throw up and he just tried so hard to be a pilot. And they did nothing to find out why he was throwing up or what's happening to this 20 some year old kid that can't fly a plane because he's throwing up and not able to function like a normal 29 year old, but, but they did nothing. And it makes me so angry to even think of what could have been done and our son could have been saved. Well, that's why we're here tonight is to, to have these conversations and hope that we can find some real actionable moments and strategies that we can solve the problem of the undiagnosed and the misdiagnosed for a period of time and the challenging diagnosis. He's such a Lisa, handsome man. Lisa, that's one other thing. Um, the data says that 50% of the uh, people that are affected by it are African-American male. By sudden um, death, yes, in athletes, yeah. yeah in athletes. Uh, as males, we have a problem sometimes of going to see a doctor. Uh, I'm lucky enough and blessed enough to have a wife who nags me every time uh, I sneeze. But, but it's not always the case. A lot of times we'll ignore things, which is a problem. And again, education, I think, would, would help in that respect. I think you bring up a good point. You know, while we're having a conversation tonight focused on African Americans and their HCM experience, men handle health issues differently than women. Women are treated differently than men when they go to the doctor. There are a lot of issues that we need to really unpack and realize that we are all humans living with an anatomy that's abnormal in HCM and it needs care and we're typically young and we're typically otherwise healthy and we don't look sick, but our hearts are not normal. And that becomes a bit of a challenge because you think a sick person, you know, somebody, I'll, I'll look at Derek in, in the picture there or Ramon in that picture. These are strapping, gorgeous young men who obviously had a very sick heart because neither one of them are with us any longer. So we have to realize that we're human and that we need to report symptoms and we need to advocate for ourselves, as Kayla said earlier. Um, I'm gonna pop back to our medical professionals for a moment. Mila, you've been listening and I know you have a research interest in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What are you seeing as actionable items that we really should start planning for in, for 2022? What do we do now? <laughs> We need to do a lot and we need to do it as fast as possible. <laughs> uh, really, that's the gist of it. But um, I um, just a couple of comments on, you know, what everyone said. Um, so part of my study is um, really interviewing folks, uh, primarily about genetic testing use, but a, a, part, a big part of the interview is about the, their path to diagnosis. Um, and Yes, there's the, 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 the long path to, to diagnosis and seeing multiple providers. And then on the other hand is the traumatic um, events that, that brought them. But 
lots and lots of folks are, you know, are, are sharing um, family, extensive family histories of multiple generations with sudden death and, you know, um, even, you know, cousins, uncles, aunts, and it's something that's been conveyed is that it's not talked about within the family either, um, let alone shared with the provider. Um, and so that's, I think, another factor that, you know, we need to consider. And really, just to echo everyone, it's both provider education and community education. Uh, when Deitra was talking about the mobile van, it was, um, Interesting because I, I work with some some of the folks who are actually going into the barbershop to be screening and referring patients for hypertension, for high blood pressure care, and so, you know, if I close my eyes and what if we just add an HCM dimension to that, right? Um, and, and so I think a lot can be done in conjunction with other uh, with other initiatives that are already happening and maybe quote unquote bigger. Uh, because some of the resistance is, um, or not so much resistance to, to HEM, you know, research is, you know, it doesn't affect that many people. <laughs> but A, that's not true, because we really actually don't know how many people it affects. Um, so we really don't have good prevalence data. But it affects many more people than a lot of conditions that have, you know, higher name recognition uh, as well. And so, but thirdly, even if it's not a massive amount of people, it's still people <laughs> and people need to be cared for and listened to and, and you know, their condition needs to be managed. Um, so I, th I think that the, so before I digress and, uh, and, and talk more and ramble on, but I, um, I think actionable items for, for next year, I think that the, uh, you know, precision health, um, uh, direction is important because, and I and I think specifically almost a campaign about fam knowing your family history um, and talking to your family members about the family history and how that can be incorporated into conversation with 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 primary care with primary care providers, primary cardiologists, etc. I mean, on a provider side, in Detroit, you can uh, chime in. A we take a lot of family history as HCM providers, but how many actual primary care people sit down and ask about a third, third um, level, you know, family, um, family tree? Um, the other thing that I mentioned in also is the hypertension HCM um, conundrum, if you want to call it. But so on one hand, eight. Hyper, high blood pressure can confound an HEM diagnosis. But on the other hand, hypertension is very common in people with HEM. And what do you do then? Because how do you manage both? And, um, you know, Yvonne mentioned that, you know, you were given medicines for hypertension and it wasn't helping. But, you know, we also need to remember that a lot of meds for hypertension actually work against HEM as well and can make HEM worse. Um, so, the tangle of high blood pressure and HCM, I think, is important um, as well. I, I agree 100%. Um, I want to dive in on, on a couple of the points that you brought up there. Um, so we need people to talk about their family history more openly. We need people to talk about all family history and go deeper. 
Um, one of the issues might be you don't know the family history. Regardless of your ethnic background, there's a lot of estranged family members and you don't know much. To say you don't know is important. One of our members here tonight is adopted. So we don't have any family history to go on whatsoever. But when you do, and you know that there's an HCM in the family, it's really important to communicate it up the family tree, over the family tree, and down the family tree. And we do have an option coming up very soon. Um, we're waiting till like January 1 to launch it. And that is our legislative initiative called the HCM Act. It has not named about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act, HCMA, see what we did there? Um, but the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act will help families provide cardiac information in the well child examination and help those providers get education on what they're looking for in those situations so that we can start having conversations about family heart history and heart health much earlier. I can't help but think that if Derek or Jill or Jasmine were asked about family history on a regular basis and they knew that there was something going on with mom, it would have made it into the medical record. Maybe it wasn't the first appointment or the second appointment with the doctor, but if it's asked every year and we update those records, maybe we would have gotten a hint and maybe it would have been looked at differently in the emergency room when Derek went down and maybe we can make a long-term difference here. So I really wanna focus on like those actionables and if we can get the HCM Act passed into law in a number of states, more families will have the opportunity to discuss their heart history with a physician. Um, I see we still have Amit with us who was going to be leaving for something else and he's been so engrossed with the conversation. He's in. Um, Amit, you've been Yeah, listening. I'm gonna get in trouble for that, yeah. I know, but it's okay, we don't mind. This, is, this has been a real privilege to, uh, to listen to this, uh, this group speak about their, their experiences. There's just a couple of things I, I wanted to touch on and I wanted to try to summarize what some of the folks have been saying. Um, you know, early on in the conversation, we talked about trust of the medical community and, and access to care. And those are obviously huge issues that, that, we, need to, um, that we need to follow. The other um, that I think we need to talk more about is, is family history and, and education and awareness about HCM and making sure our families are talking about it at, you know, at the dinner table and at gatherings. The other is, is you know, I wanted to find out what folks thought about um, transparency from from their providers. For example, uh, you know, Brian, when when you're talking to your doctor and he said you have um, you you have chest pain because you have indigestion, would the conversation have been different if if your doctor had said, you know what, it's most likely that you have indigestion. We're going to try a medication, but I can't tell you for sure. You know, does that change the tone of the conversation or does that just make you less trusting or more trusting of your provider? I know when I'm dealing with patients, I'm not a cardiologist, but when I'm dealing with patients, my conversation is very different. I'm saying things like, it, it is likely that your problem is from this and that's why we're going to treat you with this. And does that, you know, foster a different conversation with you and your medical providers? Does it make you trust them more or less? And, and that's something that, you know, um, that affects me both at, at, in my job and also, you know, I, I lost family members as well. I lost my father when he was very young. And so, you know, when, when his cardiologist told my mother uh, of two young children that, no, you don't need to follow this up. This is not going to affect your family. That, that is a very different thing to say than, 
hey, we don't know. They look asymptomatic. I don't think they need to be followed. So is that is that a worthwhile point? What do folks think about that? So I'm going to pivot up to Nicora because Nicora comes from a point of view that she is the mother. And when I started working with her, her son was a teenager. Um, it's, you know, 2018, 19, around that time when we first met. Um, there's a lot going on in the world for an African-American teenage boy. Um, and then he gets diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, I just wanted to tap into Nicora's experience there and then kind of fold that into some of the word choices that Amit is talking about. So Nicora, what's it like being a mom to this young man? So for us, because our entire, because I have twins, so I was always like, I gotta get a scholarship for these kids because I can't pay for two kids for college. So my son from a young age always played basketball, traveled the country, had a full scholarship to private school. Um, and was probably going to be in division one, most likely playing basketball when he graduated on the court during a travel game. He of course got sick, had an asthma attack and then immediately went to children's hospital. The only blessing there was that because he was a preemie twin, children's hospital saw the flipsies already in his EKG and immediately said, Hey, something's not right. It may be HCM. He may not can play basketball anymore. For him, of course, that was devastating because that's that's all he did. That's that that's what he breathed. That's what he knew. For me, as a lawyer and as a mom working for a healthcare company, I immediately took FMLA because I knew I was going to spend a lot of time researching and trying to figure out. Because I wrote evidence of coverages, I knew clinical trials were also um, an option. So I immediately took him to NIH to get clinical trials done and had my parents, my husband's parents, grandparents come in to the testing piece and get testing done and did all these things just to try to figure out the best alternative for him. They immediately said children's was going to be his specialty place. However, what children said to me was, we immediately need to do some experimental surgery because we see some fibrosis on his heart. That concerned me, so I immediately began to research and found HCMA and LISA, and then found a co. Well, the co was amazing because immediately the co had his history, but said, if he ever gets rushed to a hospital, to my son, here's my card. If you ever get rushed to the hospital, they immediately need to contact us so that we can make sure you're getting the proper care. For me as a mom and a lawyer, that automatically made me have trust. Second thing that happened is that my job, um, I wrote the evidence of coverage. My son wasn't, the tricky part about HCMA, when I hear Benjamin's story and Brian, they immediately were given the ICD. My son is in a funny category, like the four pieces where he doesn't, he's not ready for that yet. So we had to have a portable defibrillator, which is thousands of dollars. In spite of me writing the evidence of coverage and knowing the legal piece that I was supposed to get that for free, I got pushback. No, we're not paying for it, it's not covered. I said, yes, it is covered and this is why. And I wrote that. So ultimately I lost my job for the fight, but I got my defibrillator. So for me, it was still a win. Because I'm educated enough, I knew I could get employment. I had to immediately go on the exchanges and get um, insurance for my state insurance for our entire family until I found another job because I knew the importance of insurance for a son with HCM. Um, it's been a lot of battles, but in the battles I've learned. And so 
now that he's graduated um, from high school, before he went to college, I had to advocate and say, you only have a defibrillator at the gym. We need more around campus in case he falls out. Because of COVID, he already has an enlarged heart. He's gonna need a room by himself and we gotta utilize the Americans with Disabilities Act. So advocacy had to play a part. But if someone out there doesn't have as much education as me, I think that they need to look at their insurance and understand that some insurances allow for a patient advocate. So for underprivileged people, or anyone who's not educated enough, because even I ran into a lot of stumbling blocks, understand you can get a patient advocate and someone to really try to look into it with you, for you, with you. Because when you're dealing with your child's mortality, it is overwhelming. And because my son is a twin, I then had to understand that I had to get his twin sister tested every three years and constantly have all this hanging over our head because they have not found the genetic piece. Um, to link who has what in our family. And we went to uh, grandparents that were 100 years old and such. So it's been a long journey, but the advocacy never stops. Um, we want him to have still uh, lead a good life. And I'm trying to teach him advocacy. And so Benjamin, to your point of the kinesiology major, his major sports medicine major or sports studies major has that piece in it. And he had to speak this week and say, why do you advocate or what, what is exercise? Why is it important? And he did his on the HCMA and told them about his heart, which I never knew how he felt as a black boy because he doesn't speak about it. He said, mom, I don't want a counselor. Mom, I don't want you to make a big deal out of it. Mom, I don't want people to know. Well, now because he gets services at a school, they force him to speak on it. You have to tell your professors in case you fall out. You have to let other people know in case something happens. So now I'm so happy to say that he at least advocated for himself, talked about his disease, talked about the HCMA, and spread awareness on this campus. And because he's a renowned athlete, other athletes listened to him and said, man, we better get tested. So that's our, that's my story. Fantastic. Um, I, I was so happy when you shared that with me today or yesterday that he had shared his HCM status in such a positive and productive way. That's a real step in the right direction. The first two years of diagnosis are, are really challenging for a lot of people. Um, those who fought for diagnosis, it's, it's a celebration. Yay, I have an answer. The problem's not in my head. It's in my heart. I finally know. Um, so that's really nice. But typically people are a little reserved in the first year or two of diagnosis and then they'll pop out and say okay I know I now know what I'm doing and they become the fierce advocates in the long run um so we're going to get to talk about words but Kayla our, our lovely young lady from the west coast um did a video for us about her difficulty getting diagnosed and I did want to share that for a moment um she's an extraordinary young woman she's a social worker out in California who's working right now and I'm going to have her speak for herself. And for years, I would tell people, hey, I'm having chest pains. Something's not right. And I always knew that something was not right. And I always point to my heart. So I think it's my heart. And I was always told, oh, you're having an anxiety attack. You're having a panic attack. You're just nervous about going to college. That's what it is. And no one in my family had ever heard of ATM. No one knew, no one I knew really had any problems with their, with their heart. Um, I did have my grandfather who did die from a heart attack, but no one ever said it was um, related to ATM or anything. So when I got this new diagnosis, I'm like, what is this? 
Um, at first, I was very, you know, scared, but then I was relieved because all these years of me complaining, I was finally able to have a like a reason why this was happening. So I felt relief more than anything. I know I wasn't crazy, that there was actually something wrong. Definitely wanted to have um, Kayla have her say there because we're kind of talking about this topic right now. Um, so I want to go back to what Amit had said and if he's still with us or did he get in trouble and had to leave about word choice at diagnosis and word choice of how physicians speak. You know, do you believe that there are different words that bring comfort to the African-American patient that physicians should be aware of? Or, and, and are there ways that you don't want to be spoken to? And Benjamin has unmuted his mic and he's like, I got this one. So Benjamin, tell us what you think about that. Well, just listening to uh, what Dr. Amit said, I, I think that's a, a great way of interacting with the patient where sometimes you're not always going to be 100%, but giving them, helping them to understand, I think this is the right path. This potentially could be it. Um, I remember my first cardiologist, you know, is it athlete's heart? Is it HCM? You know, which, which way do we need to go? So helping the patient just understand that it may not be exactly this, but um, giving them more, I think so much of it is just communication and acknowledging when a person is saying something. And so much of this is just making me think about my wife now. She doesn't have HCM as far as I know, but some of her interactions with physicians as well, um, where she's come back home and has said, it just seems like they're not listening to me. So being able to, to, to listen and to communicate uh, in the manner that uh, Dr. Mint was um, using or describing, I think is a, a fantastic way to do it. Fantastic, thank you. Anybody else wanna comment on that? So um, for me specifically, um, I'd rather like be talked with, I'd like to be a part of the, the plan, the, the care plan, not be talked at. Like, I don't like someone telling me, this is what it is, this is what you're gonna do, you need to do this, and not really take my my word, my consideration, my thoughts, my feelings into, into, into the consideration at all. Um, I mean, even if you're like, I, I'd rather have someone who's brutally honest with me, like telling me you have this, this horrible heart disease that's gonna like drastically change your life. Like, I may not like the news, but it, He's telling me straight up and I can trust this person because he's giving me a hard, like a hard um, answer. Like, I, I know I don't like it, but he's telling me the truth and I trust him. So, I mean, it's more or less just like being straightforward with me, like talking to me like I'm a human being. Don't treat me like I'm like an animal or talking down to me like I'm beneath you. Um, that's, that's really what instills a lot of trust in doctors or physicians or just medical providers for me. Just being able to talk to me, being able to deliver good, bad news, and different news, whatever it might be, just being able to communicate that to me in a way that makes me feel like I'm a part and that like you are treating me like I'm beneath you. So let's stay here for just a second, because when you learn about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for the first time, it's a mouthful. It's a big, they're big words. You don't exactly know what they mean. Some may be able to pronounce it well. Some may have a challenge even pronouncing it. Did you feel that um, the medical providers that finally got you answers, was it because they explained it to you in a way that you understood what they were talking about versus 
other doctors who didn't even understand it, so couldn't explain it to you. What matters about the word choice and the explanations of what HCM actually is? And a tricky question that we didn't really prep for, so I'm tossing it out there. So Lisa, uh, I wanted to just tell you that one of the things that I think with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that it's such a unique disease. You know, you could uh, die and have, you know, a sudden cardiac event. Well, think about a kid getting that news. So like Brian said, the children said to my son, oh, you might have an athletic heart, but you might have to stop playing because you could die. So for him, we would leave the clinic and he would go watch practice and tell the team, there's hope, I'm, I'm making play soon, I'm making play. And I was like, what? No, you're not gonna be able to play probably. So as the parent, I'm leaning towards the you could die maybe, and he's leaning towards the hope. So then when you try to get to the bottom line and people, teams, people, everybody asking us because you know it's a popular kid, so all these people are asking us, there's a possibility he could die. That's all we could say because the disease is so confusing well, he doesn't look sick. Well, he doesn't have a, a ICD put in. Well, what, what? We're confused. And as a parent, I have to say this disease is the most confusing thing ever because it's possibilities. But the farthest possibility is death, which some of the families have experienced, which is horrible. But constantly as a mother thinking about your child's mortality is the worst. I think we can all agree with that statement. Um, and I can tell you that regardless of ethnicity, it's one thing when you have the disease, it's a completely different story when it's your child. And when you know you gave your child that disease, that's a whole other level of genetic guilt that goes on. When you don't know where your child got it from, that's a different level of stress and anxiety. Um, it's, it's horrible. It, you know, I'm, I'm a, I was diagnosed at 12 and I was literally told at my diagnosis, yeah, you can like die at any time and CPR won't save you. I was 12 years old. It was 1980. So what did I say? Do I have to do my homework? Because like, what's the purpose? I became a really bratty 12 year old for a while. Um, but words matter. Those words, those words that lovely doctor, not a pediatric cardiologist, obviously, but those words all these years later, which are well over 40 years later now, I still hear them. You could die at any moment. And that has been with me every day of my life since then. So we can live with HCM well if we can diagnose it, if we can treat it, if we risk stratify, if you're with a high volume center, your likelihood of survival is really, really high. What the problem is right now is I'm getting way too many first time callers who are of the African-American persuasion who are calling because they've lost a child, not because somebody got diagnosed. We're getting, we're getting there too late. So how to get out there, we're all gonna have to work together. We've been going on for a little over an hour now. Um, I'm going to wrap and give everybody some final comments, but this is, oh, Nanette and Charles have raised their hand. They're really good at learning the technology. Please unmute yourself and speak. <laughs> well, when I, when my our son first left, 
I was terrified and in shock for probably 18 months. But during that time, I thought of so many things that I wanted to do. I wanted to make brochures and take them to the high schools and give it to the coaches. And I even had someone to start those for me, but the COVID came out and I wasn't able to get into the schools. So that is just a small thing. I think that the coaches of these high school students should know about HCM. So the goal would be through the legislative initiatives that we're pushing forward, that we will change the laws in each state so that every student athlete has the same screenings, that the education modules for what these diseases can be, HCM and otherwise, are taught to those who do school physicals, that student athletes are given brochures every season about what the diseases are that can cause sudden cardiac arrest in the young, that coaches know what to look for. We have a whole program, and you can go right over to the website right now at 4hcm.org, and you can look up the HCM Act under our programs, and you can click and send a letter to your elected official that you want to change the world and you want to change the law. We're kind of holding off on the full launch of this program until the first of the year because the new legislative houses will sit and we want to start off fresh and go after this. But if we want systematic change, going one high school at a time is nice. But if we can have the entire state have to follow a law and have to do it, then we, we blanket change. Excellent. And we blanket change for all. And we're all going to have to jump in and get involved and make phone calls and be active participants in democracy and make sure that the laws are changed so that all families have an opportunity for diagnosis, all families have an opportunity to get to treatment, and all families have an opportunity to stay together for really, really long times. Um, we've lost too many people. I've lost family members. You've lost family members. Jasmine has lost family members. Ahmed's lost family members. We, there's too much loss here. Jill's lost two family members. There's so much loss and those losses are disproportionate in the African-American community and we've got to stop it. Um, so I'm going to do round robin. So you guys had your, your last comments um, and I'm going to go by the order I see at my screen and I'm going to end with our medical providers. Um, Jasmine, I'm going to call you after Jill so you can free your hand from that little monster there and we can get you to comment. So Jill, do you have any last words of uh, wisdom as to what we should be doing to raise awareness within the African-American community? Um, I think we pretty much, in my standpoint, covered everything. Okay. We, we hope to honor your brother's memory and do good work in his name. So thank you for being here tonight. I do appreciate it. Jasmine. What are we going to do to make that little boy's future bright and, and happy? Um, just uh, spread awareness. And I wish that like more doctors know about it and know what to look for as far as um, HCN and just, you know, take people's symptoms seriously and not just, you know, shove it off. I appreciate that. And thank you for being here. And I know you got your hands full um, and Derek left you a, quite a little gem there. So thanks for sharing. Yes, with okay. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Yvonne, our recovering warrior down in Florida. What do you want people to know? What should we be doing? You really have to advocate for yourself. 
And I want to speak to also what Dr. Kalia said about words. Um, one cardiologist told me, we have to repair this mitral valve. I'm scheduling you for surgery. And I was like, wait, wait, let me get a second opinion. And then the other cardiologist said to me, he's like, he looked at the same, the same exact reports and said to me, I've been practicing for 40 years and I've seen this before and I know what you have. And just the way, just his tone is so reassuring that, you know, I, I trusted him. And so it's just, you got to advocate for yourself and you got to get your second opinions and find the correct cardiologist. Fantastic. Thank you for your insight. Benjamin, what, what do you say? Um, a couple of things. One, just um, invest in your health to the best of your ability, uh, even if it means you do have to travel. I know we're going to be working on helping other people to helping as many people to do that. I would also say not just being proactive when it comes to potentially getting a diagnosis, but even after you get the diagnosis, now what? Or after you get the defibrillator, now what? Or after you have the surgery, now what? Where don't be ashamed or embarrassed if you do need some uh, counseling, uh, something like that. Uh, I think that's very important. And I think that's another component of being proactive, um, especially, you know, when you, when you get something so big and you don't always know what to do or who to talk to or how to process it. So um, looking at things before the diagnosis and, and continuing to be aggressive even after the diagnosis. Does anybody else find it a little ironic that his favorite character is Iron Man who has the removable heart? <laughs> <laughs> you picked up on that, huh, Lisa? Yeah, that is, uh, that is our, our big connection. I don't have a billion dollars, though, like Tony Stark, but uh, I do have the medal in the chest. We'll work on the billion, but at least you got life, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Who didn't have final words yet? Because I'm doing a bad job of keeping track because y'all moving around my screen. Um, Nikora, did you have last words yet? No. Yeah. So one of the big last words for me would be because my son had a scholarship and he's the stereotype, an athlete um, with a big heart. Um, I would believe that, um, like um, Mr. Charles and Miss Nanette said, that advocating um, and spreading awareness at um, schools, maybe HBCUs, churches, I know for me, I just try to take it on as a personal thing. So I spread it wherever I can, just because I think it's important, but just trying to get more um, information out there in the community, but not just getting the information out there, a tool for them to maybe get tested or um, have more information because the problem we're fighting is if a child has an MBA dream, the parent doesn't wanna hear about hypertrapocardiomyopathy. They're gonna keep on shooting for the dream. And so we got to make them understand that the dream is important, but dreams can change and life is important. Very well put. Brian, I'm like, I knew I was missing somebody. Brian, my quiet one, last words, last thoughts. So I guess one of the things that would have been helpful, I guess, for me was just having the knowledge of the, the resources. I didn't really know about the HCMA until I guess maybe like a year or two ago. And I mean, it would have been great to have access to all these people who are connected together that can maybe lead me down a route to maybe taking better care of myself, not just my physical, but my mental, which I, I guess leads to my other point. Um, I think a lot of it is just 
it's in your head. I'm not, not, not the disease itself, but like the hesitancy that a lot of people feel. It's like, I don't want to show weakness or I don't want to uh, expose myself to this or whatever. Um, but I feel like that could potentially be addressed if we could just learn to get past that and be like, okay, it's okay that you to ask for help. It's okay that you know you're sick. It's okay to let your guard down. It's like not everybody's out to get you, but you know, it, I it's it's more or less to me just kind of like a head game. It was for me for a while, um, but eventually I learned over time that it, you know, not like I said, not everybody's trying to hurt you. You just kind of have to you know move slow, advocate for yourself. It's okay to say. I don't want to see you anymore. I'm going to go find somebody else. So advocating Excellent for yourself point. and having those resources would be definitely beneficial. If you have a healthcare provider who you don't connect with or isn't on your team, it's okay to find another one. You don't have to stick right. with the, the one you came with. You can exactly out. It's okay. Uh, thank you for that, Brian. And I'm glad that you found this. And to all who are watching on Facebook, and I'm going to just shout out to Facebook for a minute, and then we're going to hit our medical providers here. Um, uh, Marquis, Marcus, I guess it is, um, commented that he believes that we should be doing TV commercials, billboards, et cetera, to get the word out. Um, we should be viewed as commonly as diabetes and, and cancer, um, he, in his view. And I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you on that one, but it's going to be a little bit more time and money to get there. Um, so, uh, and Amanda, who's joining us tonight, was just diagnosed yesterday. So all this is really resonating with her tonight. So we um, encourage you to keep posting on Facebook. We can answer your comments after the live broadcast, but we are still live here tonight on December 9th, 2021. Believe it or not, this year's almost over. Um, so I'm gonna give the last couple comments, um, unless anybody else has some other things that they want to say. Um, Mila, you gave us some great data tonight. We have some good actionables to start with. What's your takeaway from this evening? Um, I just want to make uh, three three quick points. Um, the emphasis is on student athletes, but I have to make a point that most students are not actually athletes, and um, it's that's important because there's a massive swath of school age children that are kind of left <laughs> and um there's there, there's lots of uh of, of kids that actually um pass out or have a cardiac arrest at the sixth grade mile in gym class and lots of schools are not prepared to handle those kind of events um and i just wanted to mention i've worked with mark sherrod on this examining you know state legislation and policy about ad requirements in schools which um in a lot of states, actually minority of states have uh, legislation requirements. Um, also, we don't have enough data actually on sudden death in non-athlete school population or in pediatric populations, because a lot of the consortia looking at that, you know, combine Canadian data and, and, and other data that has a whole other healthcare system and may or may, may not be applicable to, to that. So, um, you know, we have been looking and interviewing, you know, surveying nurse, um, school nurses um, and to see their experience in uh, witnessing sudden death events in, in schools. Um, the other thing I want to mention about the communication, I think it's really important, uh, and I miss clinical practice dearly, I, but I think it's really important to speak with patients, to speak with people how they want to be spoken with. 
Um, and that can vary from person to person. And it's important to listen more than sometimes talk. And sometimes providers love to talk <laughs> and, you know, hear themselves talk and, you know, uh, expound on their knowledge. But it's important to actually really listen to patients more uh, because they will tell you and they will communicate how, how they, uh, you know, prefer to, um, to have that relationship um, with a lot of nonverbal cues as well, you know. Um, uh, and the third, you know, from, from, from a research perspective, the challenge is, you know, how do you translate the research that's coming out of the centers of excellence and translate it into, you know, a population health level to address the disparities that we all know exist, but have a very, but they're very difficult to, to tackle because we can't, we don't have the data. Um, and so, Working on that, I think, would be, um, you know, the major accomplishment. But I also want to say that it's been really a privilege to be on this podcast and and share it with you. Nila, thank you so much for all the work that you've done. And I'm going to pause and remind you that Kayla was here earlier and she's not here live. Um, but her take home is advocate for yourself, advocate for yourself, advocate for yourself. Um, and as a, a young black woman with HCM who is a social worker, she knows how challenging it can be to advocate for yourself within the healthcare system. So she just wants to remind everybody to speak up for themselves and to be heard. Um, Dietra, I started with you. I'm going to wrap with you. I see that. So we're building a bit, we're going to get a van or an RV with lots of equipment and staff it and go out all over New Jersey on our free time. And uh, uh, what else? That's what I got big dreams. Got big dreams. Big dreams. You, know? Big dreams. you know, I feel the weight of being the only African-American healthcare provider with HCM specialty on my shoulders. So, you know, we got to, I got to represent. <laughs> and I got to make sure I help my people. Okay. <laughs> Hey, so uh, the biggest take home, listening to everybody, well, first of all, thank you for having me, but biggest take home, of course, is we need to be heard. We need to be listened to, and we need, as healthcare providers, need to take care of our patients. And it's okay if you don't know. We're not God, and unfortunately, a lot of healthcare providers think they have the God complex. I can fix you. I can save you. You just need to do what I tell you to do, and you'll be fine. It doesn't always work that way. You have to know when to quit and refer out. And even sometimes you don't even know where to refer to. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with this person. So if you don't know what's wrong with the person, get on the computer, look it up and do what's right for your patients. And I need to be able to give that message out to my fellow cardiologists. So what we have been doing at Morristown specifically, we have been reaching out to other cardiologists to educate them more on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy so that they know what to look for. They know when to refer out because you're not going to know what you're doing and it's fine to refer to us if you get in trouble. That's what some of the things that we've been doing and some other cardiologists are talking to other cardiologists, which is how our HCM center was able to grow. And we didn't really do much advertising. I think we need to continue to do that and I also hope and pray that after we have this talk that people in this group will reach out to other families and so on, because word of mouth is big. It's big. It's one of the biggest advertising things you can do in addition to TV and the other advertising things. But word of mouth is huge. And we just need to continue to talk to our African-American friends, families, 
so that they will go and get the help that they need. As a provider, I need to keep going and talking to cardiologists to make sure that they're educated on what to do. Because to Miller's point, hypertension is a big problem, especially if you have obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's difficult to control that blood pressure. And they assume, oh, African-American, we're all hypertensive. This is a blood pressure issue. And it's not necessarily so. Obstructive HCM begets hypertension. And you need to be careful in what makes you put them on to Miller's point. So education, education, and we need to talk to make this better. And research, of course, so that providers who do read the journals will know what to do and know what appropriate meds to start on these patients. Okay, Ooh. I'm going to start with some true actionables from this moment forward. Yes. Um, this little card can be sent to anybody, your doctor, if you got a mailing from the HCMA recently, you've got this. This is a QR code that takes you to HCM Academy, professional okay. education. Awesome. Uh, on the back, we'll tell you where the rest of our partners are with medical education. We have a landing page. We're partnering with the American Heart Association, with the American College of Cardiology. Our HCM Academy faculty is Martin Marin, Anjali Owens, John Lynn Jeffries, and yours truly. We develop the curriculum so that we can teach providers on what to find, how to find HCM, how to treat it, how to refer up when they don't know anymore. We're trying to educate. We need you guys to get it out there. We are gonna put a focal effort into African-American communities with this education uh, offering in the coming year. But we are a little organization with a little organization's budget. So this is gonna take sweat equity, advocacy, grassroots work. So. Passing along these cards is easy. Drop them off at doctor's offices, email your doctors, drop them off, whatever. We will help you with all those tools because we need to get the medical education elevated. We have great partners now. It's funny what happens when they start making drugs for your disease. They all of a sudden want people to know about your disease. So maybe they can sell some drugs. This is called a, a symbiotic relationship, people. We, we can be friends with our friends in pharma to help raise awareness in an unbranded way. We're not saying you need drug X or Y, but hey, if they're gonna provide educational material, we can certainly push it out there. So you're gonna start seeing a lot more out in the media about HCM. And February, we're gonna feature an HCM warrior every day of the month. And we're gonna have HCM Awareness Day on February 23rd, which is an opportunity to have everybody talking about all things HCM 24 hours. And hopefully we'll get some, some airtime as well with that. So there's a lot going on. And I'm going to be tapping a lot of members of this group and some other individuals to be continually involved in both the Health Equity Committee and then specific working groups on particular topics. We need everybody working together, which means grant writing, which means fundraising, which means program development to address the problem. We're talking tonight, we're thinking tonight, we're starting a process tonight. And it's going to be a year of work. And I can't wait to come back here next year and tell you, here's the statistics, this is what we've changed, this is what we've learned, and this is how we made it better in 2022. Amit, any final words from the board chair? Thank you all so much for being here. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing what we, uh, what we achieve in the coming year. To all of you who volunteered your time, thank you so much. I, I love you all for 
for sharing and having uncomfortable conversations with the white girl from Jersey sometimes when I say, please, I have to talk to you. Um, I love you all for accepting me for that. And I look forward to helping change the world with you all. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.